Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 271, How to Break a Kingdom in Six Months. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and we cover all kinds of material in the extra episodes. We even talk about the intersection of history and cultural imaginaries. For example, in our latest shop talk, we talked about the DNA analysis of Cheddarman and how the revelation that he had darker skin has really distressed some people. We chat about the science of pigmentation, some sociological concepts that might explain why people had such a strong reaction to what's a fairly non-controversial finding, and how this relates, in kind of an odd way, to Wakanda. And people enjoyed that episode so much that they've asked us to include a clip of it in the main show. So if you'd like to hear how the Cheddar Man controversy relates to Wakanda, and not in the way that you're thinking, you can listen to it at the end of this episode. If you're not, feel free to skip. But that's an example of the type of thing we're working on over on the members feed. And you can get instant access to that episode and all the other members extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Andrew, Elizabeth, and Aaron for signing up already. For the last several years, the Anglo-Saxons have been on a true war footing. Athelflaed and Edward have been showing skill and audacity in the field, and it's been paying dividends. Under their leadership, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of the south have been taking the fight to the Danish-controlled lands, and they were seizing massive portions of key territories. But the Northmen weren't about to take this assault on their newly won lands laying down. Scandinavian fleets from across the sea, as well as large armies surging from the five boroughs and Northumbria, were mustering to challenge the Anglo-Saxon gains in the south. And while we have the benefit of hindsight, and while we know how this will ultimately all play out, at the time, the issue of who would dominate Britain was a completely open question, and a future this uncertain is perilous for all sides. Wales, the five boroughs, East Anglia, Northumbria, Mercia, Wessex, even the occasional army from across the channel, all of them had a chance to find victory or disappear forever. In fact, the only territory that seemed to be largely staying out of the blender of southern politics was Scotland. Everyone else was making a play, be it big or small, and it's doubtful that anyone at the time could be certain how it would ultimately come to an end. Case in point, in 917, the five boroughs in East Anglia, regions that had long been on the losing side of this conflict, were making a daring play to retake their lost towns. To the south, the armies of Leicester and Northampton were raiding, pillaging, and enslaving the countryside. And this was something that was likely to draw the attention of the armies of Mercia and Wessex. Meanwhile, to the east, the combined armies of East Anglia and Huntingdon were marching out to their newly constructed fortress at Thamesford. This fortress was already changing Anglo-Saxon rule in Bedfordshire. Just the fact of its existence was a significant problem for West Saxon dominance in the region. But the East Anglians weren't about to stop at symbolic displays of power. They wanted to retake the lands that King Edward had seized. And so out of the gates of Thamesford marched the combined armies of East Anglia and Huntingdon. They were headed into the Ouse Valley, into the heart of Bedfordshire, and they advanced right upon the recently conquered town of Bedford. And right at about this point, version A of the Chronicles starts giving us details. A lot of details. 
Compared to what it's been giving us before, the pages become downright chatty. And I don't know why that is. It could be as simple as a change in scribes. Perhaps the old scribe was a bit like Z, who takes a, ah, they'll figure it out approach to writing. And maybe that person retired and was replaced by someone who's more like me, who, as you probably guessed, takes an approach that would be better described as why use five words when you can use 50. An approach, by the way, that leads Z to giving me dirty looks every time she edits my scripts. But really, I don't know why the tone shifts. Though I do find it suspect that it happens right at a point where we see Edward taking a more direct military role. And also towards the end of Athelflaed's rule. Maybe it's a coincidence, but it is a bit odd. But back to the Danish army. It's pretty clear what they had in mind. They were going to do to the Anglo-Saxons what had recently been done to them at Bedford, Buckingham, and Derby. And after about a 10-mile march, which they could have covered in a mere matter of hours, they were at the edge of Bedford. Now, in this period, attacks on Burrs have followed a sort of pattern. The attacking army would attempt to force their way through the gates or over the walls, and the garrison manning those walls would do whatever they could to beat back any assaults and try and hold their position until reinforcements came. And interestingly, before reaching Bedford, we see the Danish army from Leicester and Northampton attacking Toaster and then proceeding to ravage the lands to the south. And they might have done this because this could have the effect of slowing down or maybe even preventing reinforcements. And that suggests to me that the Danes, as they reached Bedford, were expecting to lay siege on the Burr. And they were ready for it. They had a supply chain from Tempsford that can sustain them. And considering the side comments in the Chronicle, their stores might have also been supplemented by looted material. And to provide further support, there is the army of Leicester and Northampton causing all manner of havoc in the south, which could slow down reinforcements. And that would be critical for a siege, because a siege takes time. So now, all they needed to do was surround the city, make their demands, and wait until the residents of Bedford cracked under the pressure. But, as the invading army approached, something strange happened. The gates of Bedford opened, and soldiers began pouring out into the field in front of the Burr. And not just one unit, an army was marching forward. More and more fighters came out of Bedford to meet the Danes and locked their shields before the Danes could even reach the walls of the city. This wasn't a good sign for the invading army. The fact that the garrison of Bedford felt secure enough to meet their enemy in the field suggests that their numbers must have been significantly larger than a typical defensive force. Even for a border town, which Bedford was, marching out of their defenses was a surprising move. Even Chester didn't have troops sufficient to meet the Danes in the field. But Bedford did. And that suggests that their numbers were vast. And that King Edward likely filled the town with soldiers, predicting a counterattack just like this one. So they kept coming, filling the field in front of the gates. And then, with their shields locked and ready to meet the Danes in open combat, they advanced. I doubt that this is what the Danes had in mind. But it was too late for second thoughts. All they could do now was lock their shields and hope that luck was on their side. And it wasn't. There were simply too many Anglo-Saxon warriors. And we don't have a blow-by-blow -blow account, 
but were told that the combined army of East Anglia and Huntingdon suffered heavy casualties before their morale finally broke and they fled the field, presumably running all the way back to Thamesford. Soon after that, another Danish army was mustered, this one drawn from Danish-controlled Mercia and from, once again, East Anglia. And if you're counting, this is the third invasion by a combined army just this year. The first was in last episode, and it tried to seize the newly constructed fort at Toaster, but failed and ended up just ambushing some farmers in Oxfordshire instead. The second built that fort at Tempsford and then got slaughtered outside the gates of Bedford. And now we have this third one. And it was gathered for the express purpose of seizing King Edward's newly constructed fortress at Wigging Amera. And if you look at where these fights are happening, you can see a pretty clear picture. The five boroughs and their allies were losing lands to Mercia and Wessex, either through direct seizures like at Derby or Bedford, or through the construction of fortresses like at Toaster and Wigging Amera. So in response, the Danes were raising armies and attempting to take those lands back. At least five individual armies, forming into three massive combined armies, had been raised for this purpose. But thus far, all they had accomplished was the seizure of some cattle and some farmers from Oxfordshire. Oh, and they constructed a single fort at Thamesford. But that's it. So, as this third army advanced upon Edward's new fortress at Wigging Amera sometime in early summer, their morale must have been low. And it should have been. The Danes were outclassed. Edward and Athelflaed were raised for this. They had learned at their father's feet. They knew how to fight a defensive war and arrange their militaries in such a way as to create a bulwark against an invading army. Their childhoods had prepared them for exactly this moment. And as soon as the Danes invaded Mercia or Wessex, the children of Alfred were in their element. Furthermore, the Danes weren't even really safe in their own lands. Athelflaed was an experienced leader who had ruled jointly with Athelred, and at least towards the end of his life, organized military operations with him. And if you think back to the time of Athelred, you might recall that he was an experienced and aggressive war leader with a history of offensive wars that struck into enemy lands. And it just so happens that once Athelflaed took the reins of power, she showed herself to also be an aggressive leader who was willing to strike deep into enemy territory. It seems like she might have learned from Athelred. And looking at Edward's behavior over the last few years, he seems to have picked up a few tricks himself. You could not have had two rulers more suited to the task at hand. And so it's no surprise that things were starting to turn against the Danes. But maybe this third combined army would be different. Maybe they stood a better chance. And as that army approached Wigging Amera, things did look a bit better. Unlike Bedford, the West Saxons were staying behind their walls. Maybe they finally caught them off guard. Maybe these Anglo-Saxons were hiding behind their walls because they didn't have the numbers to fight. Or maybe their forces were unskilled and untested. Whatever it was, this was a good sign. So the Danes formed their siege lines and began their assault. And like with prior sieges, the defenders likely used anything at their disposal to slow down the Danish advance and repel them from the walls of the Burr. I don't know if they used bees again, but I hope they did. And we're told that the fighting went long into the day. 
But at the end of the day, the Danes failed to take the walls. And then something interesting happened. They called it quits after just one day. Sieges go on for weeks to months, but this new army could only manage a single day before they packed up their things, grabbed any cattle that they could find in the nearby lands, and legged it back home. Their morale must have been absolutely trashed. And I get it. This had been an awful year for the Danes. They'd lost Darby, Toaster, Wigingamera. Moreover, they tried and failed to siege Toaster and Wigingamera, and they were slaughtered outside the walls of Bedford. And here's the worst part of it all. It was only midsummer. There were still about six months left in the year. So maybe they just had enough. But there's another possibility for why they might have bailed after just one day. They might have caught word of what was happening within Wessex. Because while that third army retreated with nothing more than Bessie the cow and a bruised ego, King Edward was making preparations. He'd sent out word to all the shires within reach that they were to send their furds into his service. Any furd that can make the march and meet him by the specified date at the specified location should send their forces. And so a great host was assembled only a short distance away from the East Anglian fortress at Tempsford. And targeting that fortress was a wise decision. So long as the Danes held a fort within the Ouse Valley, large portions of Bedfordshire would be at risk. From there, they could launch any number of raiding missions into the countryside. Or perhaps they could even send further direct assaults on Bedford itself. Edward needed to push the boundaries back. And to do that, he had to go through Tempsford. And so King Edward and his massive army marched upon the fort. And his approach was well-timed. This fort wasn't just home to a defensive force. It housed the King of East Anglia who very well might have been Guthrum II. And it also held large numbers of highborn nobles, including several Yars and the king's son and brother. Their presence there indicates that this wasn't just an outpost. This was a major military position and a staging point for further campaigns. After all, there really was still plenty of campaigning season left. But Edward had beaten them to the punch. And while East Anglia was battered from their numerous defeats over the last several years, Wessex had been triumphant. And not just triumphant, it had been growing, which meant that as East Anglia's forces dwindled, likely along with their morale, Wessex was on the rise. Consequently, the great host that Edward assembled likely dwarfed the force that was currently manning the walls at Thamesford. And as King Edward and his army approached, the king of East Anglia and his army must have realized the trouble they were in. Because rather than marching out to directly confront Edward on the field of battle, the East Anglians barred the gates and prepared for a siege. And that might work. Perhaps if they could just hold out long enough, their allies from the five boroughs, well, now the four boroughs, or maybe even their allies in Jorvik, could come to their rescue. But Edward was all too aware of how sieges could drag out. The reign of his father was punctuated by numerous sieges, and many of those sieges were broken in the dead of night, or simply didn't accomplish all that much, despite the hardship that they imposed upon the kingdom and the Ferd. In fact, while Edward was fighting the Appledore Danes at Farnham, and while he chased them to the Thames, 
His father and the bulk of the army of Wessex were stuck waiting it out in a long, uneventful siege at Exeter that ultimately didn't accomplish all that much. And considering that Edward had a front row seat to many of those events, I can't imagine that he was all that eager to repeat his father's strategy, especially when he had so many fighters at his disposal. So as the East Anglians prepared for a long siege, Edward ordered the advance. With shields locked, the army of Wessex advanced upon the walls. And unfortunately, I don't know the specific tactics that they used to assault those walls, whether they tried to undermine them, whether they used ladders, whether they used battering rams or some form of machines of war. I don't know. It wasn't recorded. But the Chronicle states that the West Saxon army, quote, attacked it until they took it by storm, end quote. And I can't help but read this to mean that this was a hard fight. The scribe could have said, attacked it and took it by storm. But by saying they attacked it until they took it by storm, sounds more like this was a drawn out battle, perhaps lasting for quite some time. And actually, based on the language of version A of the Chronicle, it sounds like this siege lasted into early autumn. But in the end, the walls fell and the army of Wessex rushed in. In the melee that followed, Jarl Toglos was slain, as was the king of East Anglia, his son Jarl Mana, his brother, and any who raised a weapon in an effort to defend themselves. Only those who immediately surrendered survived. But even for those who survived, their troubles didn't end. We're told that they were captured, which suggests that they were enslaved. But with that victory, Bedfordshire was now thoroughly in West Saxon hands. And with so many of the Danish ruling nobility of East Anglia lying dead at Thamesford, including their king, the Eastern Kingdom was now thrown into chaos. However, Edward wasn't done. See, Wessex was vast, far larger than East Anglia, and he had only called the soldiers who could reach Thamesford by the specified date. That left large numbers of soldiers with time on their hands. So, while Edward was at Thamesford, a second force was being prepared in Kent, Surrey, and Essex. And soon after Edward's victory at Thamesford, that force marched. Now, you might remember that back when East Anglia supported Athelwald's rebellion, it was Kent who disregarded the king's order to retreat and continued to ravage the East Anglian countryside. It was the Kentish army specifically who killed King Eric of East Anglia and Athelwald Atheling in battle. And they had done that even though it resulted in the slaughter of large numbers of their own forces. It's not specifically discussed, but Kent clearly had a pretty big beef with East Anglia. And while we don't know who led this army, based on the context of the entry, it seems that Kent made up the bulk of the army. So my guess would be that that beef was still going. And once that force entered East Anglia, they headed straight for one of the major political and economic centers of the region, Colchester, formerly known in Roman times as Camelodunum. Now, Wessex at this time was on the cutting edge of military organization on the island. Thanks to the development of the Ferd and the creation of the Burgle system, they were able to produce troops quicker and in larger numbers than East Anglia. King Edward was able to have multiple massive armies operating in the field. And because they were taking it in shifts, they weren't getting exhausted. Wessex 
had become a machine of war. And by the time that East Anglia likely realized they'd fallen behind, it was too late. Colchester fell under the weight of the West Saxon onslaught. And it seems that Kent's beef with East Anglia really wasn't over. Because much like Athelflaed's attack in Wales, the West Saxon army out of Kent, Surrey, and Essex demonstrated shocking brutality in their victory. Rather than simply capturing Colchester, we are told that they, quote, besieged the borough and attacked it until they took it and killed all the people and seized everything that was inside except the men who fled over the wall, end quote. The only survivors were the people who managed to escape. It was a slaughter. It was also a devastating loss for East Anglia. But they still weren't out of the fight yet. They still had war bands in operation, such as they were. And they also had a little luck on their side. Because just as East Anglia was at its lowest point, a Viking fleet appeared on the horizon. And the remnants of the East Anglian army rushed to meet them. And were told that they, quote, enticed, end quote, the Vikings to join them. And I don't know what that enticing really involved, but I suspect it involved quite a lot of promises. Like, what do you want? Money? Titles? It's not like we have a king anymore, so um, want to be king? Something like that. But whatever they promised, apparently it was acceptable because the Viking fleet joined the East Anglians and they marched upon Malden. The Chronicle says that they picked this target because they, quote, intended to avenge their injury, end quote. As you might remember, Edward had only recently constructed that burr at Malden, and it gave him greater control over the Thames estuary, as well as over Essex. And so much like the attacks on Toaster and Wigging Amera, I think the Danes were desperately trying to retake their lost lands. But they probably also realized that a direct assault on Colchester especially while the Kentish men were probably still in there, would have been suicide. But the trouble with this plan was that attacking any burr at this point was pretty close to suicide. Edward and Athelflaed had perfected their father's defenses, and East Anglia, even with their fancy new Viking allies, were hopelessly outmatched. And what followed at Malden was basically a rerun of their previous attempts at attacking burrs. The Danes began their siege, the defenders held off any attempts at assaulting the walls until their reinforcements from nearby burrs came to their aid. And then the Danes fled, having accomplished nothing other than incurring further casualties. Only this time, the West Saxons weren't content to allow the Danes to escape, as they had done at Toaster. They weren't willing to suffer any further raiding from these Vikings. So as the combined East Anglian Viking army fled the field, the defenders from Malden poured out of their gates joined the reinforcements that were already in the field, and gave chase. On an unknown battlefield, the West Saxons caught up with the fleeing Danes and forced a confrontation. In the ensuing fight, we're told that the soldiers from Malden and the surrounding area put the Danes to flight again, but not before killing, quote, many hundreds of them, end quote. Meanwhile, still in that same autumn, King Edward and his army marched upon Passanum, which was just to the south of Northampton. But more importantly, it was less than 10 miles from Toaster. And Edward's purpose for being there was clear. He and his army would provide protection from Northampton, while a construction team added a stone wall to the burr at Toaster. This was a massive show of force. 
and in combination with the rapid loss of most of the army of East Anglia, the loss of Derby, and the general collapse of the southern Danelaw, well, it all proved to be too much for Jarl Thurfirth of Northampton, and so we're told that in the autumn, Jarl Thurfirth submitted to King Edward, along with his nobles and his armies. And this wasn't just a minor Jarl. When Thurfirth of Northampton submitted, he brought with him lands that stretched all the way up to the River Welland, which was about 50 miles to the northeast, well past Corby and Petersburg. So suddenly, with the fall of Derby and Northampton, Leicester was surrounded, and Lincoln and Nottingham were within striking distance. And East Anglia was truly alone. But with that success, the term of service for the Ferd that was under Edward's command expired, and they marched home. However, because of the organization of Wessex, that didn't mean that the king lacked an army. Instead, a new, fresh force marched forth. And it was still autumn. Still plenty of time to campaign. So while the victorious Ferd marched home, the new Ferd marched upon Huntingdon, the Danish fortress that housed the remnants of the second of the four combined Danish armies of 917. And much like at Thamesford, the West Saxon army overwhelmed the defenses of the fort and captured it. We aren't told what happened to the people within the fort, but after its capture, Edward ordered the burr to be repaired and manned by his troops. And following that loss, the people of Huntingdon submitted to Edward. Next, Edward and his army marched south to Colchester, where he rebuilt the defenses of the town and manned them, again, with West Saxon soldiers. And just so he can keep track of how fast this happened, he completed his repairs before November 11th. We aren't even at the end of the year yet. There was still some time left to campaign if Edward really wanted to. And upon realizing that Colchester was truly lost, not to mention the fact that portions of the five boroughs and their allies had collapsed, and that the various holds of the Danelaw had suffered punishing defeat after punishing defeat this year, well, for East Anglia and Essex, that was enough. They decided to call it a day. The dream of independence was over. The Danish kingdom that had once been ruled by mighty Guthrum was finally finished. And the Danes of East Anglia and Essex submitted to King Edward, placing what remained of their army under his command. And then Cambridge, which apparently remained unaffiliated throughout all of this, took one hard look at what happened to East Anglia and said, nope, no thank you, and submitted to Edward as well. So in just a handful of months, East Anglia and Southern Danelaw were over. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And you can join all our other communities, and you can find links to all of them in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Okay, here's that clip that I promised you. Another thing I wanted to talk about today was something that actually happened on our social media sites. Okay. So we got a bunch of emails and a bunch of tweets and messages about uh, the latest finding about Cheddar Man. Yes. So uh, for those of you who have been either under some sort of social media rock for the last month, Cheddar Man is the guy we talked about way back in like, what, episode two? Yeah, I feel way like back. Way, back way back there. Back. And that's yeah. because he's 10,000 years old, yeah. give or take. 
um, one of the oldest skeletons found in Britain. And we've known about him for quite a while. We've And uh, I want to say it was about 10, 20 years ago, they extracted his mitochondrial DNA from this skeleton. Yeah, and they did that, that experiment where they went and, and took... DNA samples from people in the uh, the actual area, and it turned out that one of the history teachers that was still living there was teaching history in the Cheddar region was a direct descendant of Cheddar Man. Yeah, or at least shared the same mitochondrial branch. And there's actually two in the village that were in that same line, which is awesome. Yeah. So thanks to that, we kind of know that Cheddar Man wasn't some fluke out of nowhere. He was likely part of the local population and the the local population that he was a part of stayed on. Well, since that study, our uh, our, our genetic science has progressed. And so they were able to extract more DNA from the skeleton and get... Yeah, they sequenced his whole genome, right? As much as they could. As I understand it, you don't usually get the entire... Like if you do 23andMe or whatever, they often you have chunks missing because they weren't able to sequence part of your DNA. You get even less from a skeleton like this because chunks have been degraded, etc. So you get as much as you can, and but what they were able to find... I wonder how complete my grandmother's was, because when I had her do... Uh, <laughs> you know how you have to do the mouth swap? Uh-huh. So right before I came over, she was eating chocolate, and I'm wondering how much of her ge- genomic like DNA thing was chocolate versus <laughs> Nana. Because <laughs> so you look I like you're say, really closely related to chocolate. The vial... <laughs> The vial was a little bit brown, and I was like, oh, oh, well. You're just part cocoa plant. <laughs> I know. Um, fascinating. Yeah, nana. <laughs> <laughs> but the science has been progressing, and yeah, they had enough of a chunk to make it worth putting through, uh, you know, going through some sequencing. And out of that, we were able to get a better idea about what this guy looked like, like the the parts of his face that that's, you know, emotionally powerful to us because we react to seeing someone's face and someone's eyes, and... Out of this, we discovered that he had blue eyes, he might have had slightly curlier hair, and he was uh, dark to black skin. Yep. Fascinating. And because of this, we now have a facial reconstruction of Cheddar Man that is very evocative, you know, reasonably close to what the guy actually looked like. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Amazing find. Totally. We share it on social media. And the vast majority of people were like, yes, awesome. You know, reacted the same way we did. Twitter was very well behaved. 100% well behaved. Facebook, we had about 30% that started to get really upset. Yeah, Um, which is funny because I didn't know that it was controversial that pale skin is a recent morph of humanity. Yeah, and I wanted to talk about that in particular, sort of this reaction, what it means, what's coming from. And I wanted to address first the misconception of the science that's behind this. So explain what 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 is skin color? Why, why did it happen? Um, and why isn't it present in Britain 10,000 years ago, pale skin in particular? Um, and then I kind of want to just talk again about why it was ups- that was an upsetting revelation to some people. Besides just, you know, the obvious answer of racism. Yeah, it's going to be a rabbit hole. Well, break it down. <laughs> racism is actually kind of a, it's an interesting social phenomenon that is it's not just about people being bad people um it's more complex than that it's not a good ideology to have but there's a reason it exists and i I feel like the if we understand the reason why it exists and why people are drawn to racism as an ideology we're going to be better equipped to combat it uh so that's kind of why i wanted to pick it apart but first let's go to skin uh 
This is going to be really heavy. This yeah. Is, no, okay. that's why I was like, like, pull out the beer and just start chatting. It's I, cool. I was I was busy thinking that this was going to be a light shop talk where, you know, we complain about Britannia. and We'll, st- we'll end with Britannia. It'll be okay. Uh, in the middle, <laughs> though. No, I think I... I feel like if we understand it, it's less scary to us. Okay. Racism in particular. Okay. So yeah, going going back to why do we have different skin colors in the first place? What is that? We've got a gradient, we know this, of skin pigmentation levels going from very dark black to very pale white, of which I'm at that second yeah. end of the spectrum, yeah, you're totally pretty there. hardcore. Um, Unless you're out in the sun for more than 15 minutes, then you're uh, beet red. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, it it's an adaptation, but only for certain areas. <laughs> We know that it maps generally onto latitude. We also know it's it's a re, it is a recent adaptation. Like it, it was not there through most of our human history. Yeah. And part of what Cheddarman explains to us is that it was even more recent than maybe we thought. Yeah. Um, we knew that it at least when I was back in uh, school studying physical anthropology, they were saying it was about a six thousand year ad- adaptation to go from very dark black to very pale white, which is actually fairly quick yeah. uh it, that that points to it being a fairly simple mechanism as to why it happens in the genes um and also that it has a fairly direct um system of selection so you think there was a lot of people who when they migrated north were just like dealing with seasonal affective disorder and like rickets very possibly um this really depressed cro-magnon was like oh <laughs> it's really uh. sad. um first we know or just for those who maybe maybe never thought about this before skin color is about the level of melanin so a body that produces more melanin is darker if you produce less you're lighter and this does a couple of things for the body but it relates to how much sunlight is getting through your skin and into the body Um, And most people are familiar with how that impacts your production of vitamin D. So your body produces vitamin D and it relies on the sun, a certain amount of sun exposure in order to do that. Obviously, if you're in the center of the planet, we've got constant, very high levels of uh, sun exposure. You don't actually need a whole lot of that getting through your skin in order to produce sufficient amounts of vitamin D. I don't know. I don't know. My understanding is if you're in the center of the earth, you just eat the alloy, right? That's that. Those are two different classic sci-fi novels that you just completely mixed up. We're gonna have to get you like schooled on the basics. But no, I'm talking about near the equator. If you go farther north or farther south, you get less and less of that direct sunlight. And so people know about the vitamin D production and it gets harder. And so yeah, we do have people who uh, are either isolated from the sun in some ways, or even some people who are just darker skin tone who are living in northern latitudes who develop problems associated with deficiencies in vitamin D. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we might expect that people around Cheddarman's time who apparently had not developed pale skin might have been dealing with some of those effects. But this is the thing with genetic mutation is that you don't, it's, it's a random occurrence. The genetic mutation is random. You can't just make it appear out of nowhere because you need it. Once it happens though, then you can have a rapid distribution because it has a benefit. So that's why, even though it's beneficial to have pale skin up in northern latitudes, you may not have had it because that genetic mutation hadn't occurred yet in the human population. Or if it had, it might have been in a different part of Europe Mm -hmm. or some other northern part of the latitude. The driver behind pale skin that I think a lot of people don't know about is actually related to folate. 
and folic acid. Hmm. So a lot of uh, women and couples who've maybe tried to go get pregnant or um, been pregnant, had children, know that often what your doctor will tell you is to get on, you know, prenatal vitamins early right. on in pregnancy or when you're trying to get pregnant. And those vitamins have a lot of things in them, but the important one, the one that they really want you to have is folic acid because the folic acid turns into folate. That folate's very important for early development of a fetus. This is where spina bifida comes from, mm-hmm. is if you are deficient in that. In, in utero, you will have a risk of developing uh, spina bifida. The certain uh, The neural tube doesn't quite form right. And I actually think it's that that probably drove pale skin. Um, I'm not alone in this. The proliferation of pale skin when it did finally show up in human populations to spread fairly rapidly is because that's about you're going to see a a mutation proliferate when it's related to the direct success of young, of youth. You're going to have more babies. They're going to be more healthy. You're going to have fewer failed pregnancies. Right. So women who are low on folate, folic acid and then folate, which the body produces out of that, are going to have fewer miscarriages. The babies they have are going to be healthier. And that is usually when you have a few thousand year adaptation as opposed to, you know, a hundred thousand year adaptation. So that makes a lot of sense. What has always thrown me about this is if it's related to sunlight, Mm -hmm. why don't we see lighter skin in, say, Southern America, Southern Africa? Why don't we see it among the Aborigines? Why is it apparently strictly a Northern European experience? Precisely the same thing that I just sort of described, which is you're waiting for that mutation to happen. If it doesn't happen, then you just sort of deal with the slightly lower uh, successful success of birth rates, a certain amount of vitamin D deficiency, or perhaps you're able to adapt that through diet. There's a suggestion by some, and it, it holds some weight in the community, it's just in the scientific community, it's just hard to sort of prove, is that this was particularly driven in Europe because they fairly quickly went to a grain-based diet when agriculture happened that was what i was asking about was was what specifically made the spread of that mutation just go Mm -hmm. gangbusters there's two things one say if you're you know southern polynesian groups that actually get fairly close to the pole down there why aren't they yeah uh the mutation may not have occurred at all Okay. So or, if it's not or, getting down there, then if it doesn't happen in the population, then it can't proliferate. Or if you're like in a hunter-gatherer fishing community, you might not require the degree or of... Or if it does, if the mutation does show up, it may not proliferate because you don't have the drive because you're already getting the vitamin D or potentially the folate. Right. Right. So... Uh, through dietary matter yeah. rather than you know being like no no we're just gonna eat wheat forever now mm-hmm. yeah and that might be more what's happening because if it's just hard because if cheddar man was that dark that late then this might have been a more difficult mutation more rare mutation to have pale skin than we initially thought it made it because some mutations happen quite frequently right and so you can sort of have a parallel uh evolutionary moment where multiple populations develop the same mutation and it all sort of you know proliferates together other mutations are very rare that's that's what makes this whole thing really interesting is that it could potentially move the timetable up Mm -hmm. alternatively if it doesn't 
it's yet another instance of widespread travel because either Britain is still dark at this point or Britain is in long distance trade routes or some sort of migratory patterns. But either way, it changes the the common preconception of what ancient Britain looked like. I suspect it's more the former. Me um, too. There's, there's maybe a group, maybe pale skin was developing. I think a lot of people sort of suspect it was coming from the Middle Eastern area or the Caucasus area where pale skin might have first popped up. And maybe that was already starting at 10,000 years and just hadn't, you hadn't had a wave of migration of the, of paler skinned people in to that area. Right. And I suspect there were probably more, these people were more aware of each other, but I, my guess is that the dark skin was probably just the norm for most of humanity until very, very late in our, our, our past. Well, a relatively young species anyways, like the, yeah, yeah, the, we're the, only a 200 thousand years old it's not and and it looks like most of that we were very very dark so that's you know whirlwind tour of the science behind it and in this case we're we're literally talking about skin pigmentation race is something different race is a that's a a construct it's a social construct it's something we we started developing socially in europe around the time that europe was colonizing the rest of the world and they were simultaneously trying to make a good faith effort in a you know naive kind of way of of how the world worked that now that they're encountering it in this frequency well uh, and excusing the fact that they were dominating the shit out of these people and we're going to get people right again like that wasn't the first time that people tried to categorize other people based on what they look like and where they're from the romans did it the chinese have done it Mm -hmm. like it seems to actually go hand in hand with empire a lot of times no it's not it is not unique to the europeans the the system we are dealing with today in the western world is coming from that yes yeah no the europeans did not invent that that tendency but that is a system that we're still dealing with and a big part of what they were pointing to in part because they were dealing with the triangle trade of african slaves was this focus on skin color because there was such a visual difference that they were dealing with. So it was an easy thing to point out and go, ah, yeah, see, uh, this is this must be important. And it's, it's not. So when we talk about race, we're talking about this system that was very color focused and sort of assumed that color was important. And of course, there's this social thing going on where since we've been dealing with that system that was put in place for about 400 years, race has become naturalized it's, well it's it become naturalized in our mind and also it's it's now a social category that functions as a real thing because we've made it a real thing yeah uh, people are treated yeah. differently have had different access over the space of generations to various resources so right so you're dealing with actually social repercussions of a construct so it becomes real but the the actual basis for that construct is biologically still bullshit. it's meaningless yeah. um there we really aren't that different as a species like we're we're frighteningly similar similar, even compared to other species so it's yeah i think we've talked about this in a previous episode where where we're kind of a bottleneck species Mm -hmm. and so unlike a lot of other animals where you can actually breed uh, animals with their cousins uh, if you do that with humans you end up with the Habsburgs really fast. It starts falling apart pretty fast. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, we're just we have a, a lot of genetic similarity across humanity as, yeah. as as we know it. So we know biologically race isn't a thing. Race is purely a social thing with very real world consequences. 
and what I think why race is such a prominent thing for a lot of people and the reason why a lot of people had a, uh, such a negative visceral reaction to this idea that this ancestor that they had come to know as their ancestor would have been dark and looked very different from them has more to do with the concept we also talked about in an early episode, which is the imaginary. social imaginary. Yeah. And, and here's, here's, if you're listening to this episode and you're appalled by the, the cheddar man thing, or you read it and saw the people, uh, talking about it. Um, here's a few markers because I was baffled and shocked by the reaction that we got, uh, because the same people who were just deeply unhappy about the idea that that cheddar man had dark skin are totally cool with him living at a time where we had giant deer walking around in Britain, where Britain had only recently started to come out of a tundra. Like this is an alien freaking Britain and people are just rapidly being like, no, no, this is impossible that, that there's anybody in Britain who doesn't look exactly like me as I look right now mm-hmm. and with my tracksuit and trainers. A lot of people are trying to make excuses like, oh, well, he must have come from somewhere else. As in him personally was some sort of immigrant. A lot of people thought it was some sort of um, support of contemporary immigration policy. Yeah, that was the really interesting thing was we kept on having people among this, what, 30% group, telling us that uh, we needed to keep politics out of history. We were just reporting history. And I'm more than happy. You guys might have noticed. I am more than happy to talk about politics. This one was, we were just talking about history. Very specifically scientific. And a lot of people were also, also arguing that the scientists were being political, that this was some sort of lie that they were putting forward as some sort of anti brexit propaganda campaign and you really do need a beautiful mind chart to get there a little bit and also just some a lack of understanding i think of how science works um and and as a as an institution how science works and probably this is for a lot of people the first confrontation of the idea that we were very dark colored as a species until very late but returning to this social imaginary issue Part of the reason why this became a problem for people, why a lot of people had this visceral reaction against this finding about Cheddar Man, goes back to this social imaginary thing. I don't think they were actually card-carrying members of the KKK. I don't think a lot of them were committed to some sort of ideology of racism. There are people who are like that. But I think a lot of other people are just, they find an important part of their identity, of their self-worth, as being tied to some story about people who look like them going and back into something. history yeah. yeah that they i can tie myself to this this grand story this grand narrative and it's important that that narrative looks like me because this this is how i understand my place in the world and and things that i can be proud of and take some sort of part in well in the past is for most people so soupy mm-hmm. um and i didn't realize how soupy it was for most people until i started this podcast where I had people asking me about the Anglo-Saxons and it sounded like they were asking about the Paleolithic era. And I have had people write into me who wanted to know how did how did Alfred deal with Penda and things like this. And I'm busy being like, we're dealing with hundreds of years here. I, and and that's just that's just the the uh, the Middle Ages period. A lot that's, of it. That's written history. Right? Yeah. Let alone prehistory. A, yeah. A lot of it like. This uh, the the prehistory portion of our our history is enormous, enormous, and 
the instinct, it seems like, for a lot of people is to compress it all and to be like, well, we were cavemen and then 1066 happened and and then Brunel came along and now we're here um, <laughs> and started in the 60s. And then we have a really granular history from the 60s forward and ta-da, humanity, <laughs> right? And the reality is, is that most of our history is prehistory and like there, there is far more history between Cheddar Man and Caesar than there is to Caesar to us. Yep. But people have a real hard time wrapping their heads around that. And then there's also, I, I was thinking about Cheddar Man while we were watching Black Panther. And I think that all kind of wraps into itself in this interesting way, because what we're talking about is not some sort of biological issue. We're talking about cultural imaginaries and how they intersect with our identities and our sense of selves and our sense of ourselves in history. So Black Panther. Uh, awesome movie. Awesome movie. We loved it. King of, of this, literally an imaginary, which is this, this Wakanda. imaginary yeah nation of wakanda which is about it's five tribes that have been isolated from the rest of society but are also developed this amazing technology that you know uh, so advanced it appears alien because it's just yeah so different it's got no like historic relation to the rest of the world's technology so it looks and functions very different it's super advanced the term i've heard for it is afrofuturism and it's awesome it's very cool and Part of the reaction to this movie, why it was been really powerful for people, particularly black people across the globe and people in Africa, is because they were able to go to the movies and see a cultural imaginary constructed where people who look like them are heroes. And well, it goes beyond that. It's it's a uh, it's a cultural imaginary that portrays black people outside of a colonialist past yes which you never see no, i think this is the first time we've ever seen that and this is part of the why this thing was so visually stunning and interesting was because all of the costumes all of the um construction of the buildings and even the way that, like people were uh moving and talking is drawn from african tribal groups yeah. um and and tribal styles and practices that have nothing to do with the rest of the world it was it's born and bred in Africa. And we don't see a whole lot of that. That doesn't come out in on pop culture because it's driven by fundamentally white people. And so what people were reacting to was, oh my God, I have a cultural imaginary of my own. And it was coming out of specifically a very popular genre right now. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there are, there are always films that are done, uh, but a lot of times it's, it's indie, mm-hmm. super indie. This was a, what is it? The, the, third or fourth biggest grossing blockbuster ever mm-hmm. like just huge and and it was a powerful experience for black people who are systemically sort of denied that experience that a lot of white people just genuinely t- take for granted because we've always had it in our you know actual lifetime experiences but wakanda as cool and awesome as it is is as much a cultural imaginary as what I think a lot of um, the people who are reacting to a black cheddar man experience. Like they've built right. up a, a similar historical idea in their mind. That, um, that Britain has, is and has always been like the, the lily white. Lily white. Well, it looks like me, basically. It, this looks like me and it was cool. And there's things in there that I can be proud of. But the Wakanda is known as a cultural imaginary and known as a... a 
fictional construct that we can just sort of take pleasure in and and draw inspiration from as as a fiction. Right. Whereas this image of a super white Britannia that has always been is treated as historical fact yes. by a lot of people. And to deny that is to deny people, you know, yeah, that identity. Yeah, I didn't think about it. Uh, I remember encountering a ton of resistance during the first season of the BHP when I talked about how, you know, the Roman legions weren't all white. Well, and that's that, been huge this year. Mary Beard got, like, filleted on social media for like a cartoon that included a legionary with dark skin yeah. like yes there were black legionaries very obviously they were pulling from africa duh yeah. they were pulling from everywhere yeah yeah but like that was a huge section of their empire but here's i guess the point i'm getting to and why i think i i don't know how to reach the particularly virulent committed to ideological racism kkk guy i i think what motivates them probably a little bit different but the sort of what is a defensive racism that we get from people who are upset about a black cheddar man. Is that sort of like an implicit bias where it's just you don't even recognize what's happening? It's just operating underneath the, the surface? Um, I It's probably related to it. I think specifically this idea of I, I'm very emotionally attached to particular cultural imaginaries that I don't recognize as cultural imaginaries. I think they're history. Yeah. So your reaction that your knee jerk reaction here is. Why are you changing our history? Yeah. Why are you politicizing and changing our past? Why are you changing me? Right. And I I guess what's important is that part of how we think about ourselves as tied into history needs to change a bit. Yeah. You know, you it's cool to know where you came from, but one, it's very important to detach yourself from something that might be just a cultural imaginary that you enjoy for a mm-hmm. time, like <laughs> Ren Fair. <laughs> I like going to Ren Fair, wearing a kilt, and drinking beer. I know that has nothing to do, that has more to do with a fantasy world that's very cool than it does to, with any particular history. Right. And we have to share a commitment to truth. History uh, belongs in this sense along with science, which is just that we pursue the truth as it is. Yeah, the past belongs to everybody. Exactly. Yeah. And you should probably focus on taking pride in the things that you personally have done. Yeah. <laughs> you have yeah. Li- limited ownership, no matter how much of someone in p- has history looks like you. I think you might be onto something there that, that it, it, it might be tied into people taking pride and personal ownership of things that were accomplished by people who've been dead for centuries. Mm-hmm. I think ownership is the big part of it because when I launched this, Boy, did I get a lot of pushback because I have an American accent. And the funny thing is, when I told people, no, 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 I was actually, I'm from Abigail. I'm Welsh. Um, a lot of the complaints stopped, which is stupid. You can go back in the reviews and you'll say, see people defending you based on, oh, no, it's okay. It's okay. He's from Wales. Yeah. Where, whereas it really shouldn't be an issue at all, no matter what. And the funny thing is these same people, I guarantee you, they sit down quite happy and watch a documentary on Egypt done by an Englishman. Like, guarantee that t- definitely happens. But the thing about it is, is that this is, the past belongs to everybody and nobody. And I mean, yeah, the past, I think, fundamentally belongs to the people who lived it. Yeah. Uh, first, and then we're interlopers that come in and try to find the truth after the fact and we'll never really know and that's the humility of history yeah and and yeah it's uh, you have to be careful 
So it's fine to indulge in cultural imaginaries. Wakanda's a great one. Totally is. And that's why it's so great is that it's set in, you, you know it's fake as we're making it. And it's just this fiction we can find inspiration and joy in. And totally want to live in Wakanda though. When we set it in the past, I, I 100% would. Right. Um, <laughs> but when we set it in the past, there's this danger of pretending that that's reality. And it's not. And you've got to be careful about that. And that's where, you know, I think we can address some of this defensive race-related rejection of, of scientific fact is coming from is, is this, oh, but I lose something of myself here. I lose my identity. And your identity shouldn't have been tied to these things in the first place. Yes. So start there. Start by letting that go. And then, you know, try to find a more holistic joy and knowing what came before us. I feel bad because this is kind of, we're, we're preaching at people who support our show and... Who are unlikely to have had that problem. I, I, I can all but guarantee that none of them were the people that we were... Sure. But I wanted to address it because I thought it, it's, you know, it's true. That I, uh, the members listening to this are unlikely to have been part of that crowd. But I imagine there may have been some who, was, who were reading that reaction and themselves grappling with how to respond or deal with the vitriol that was yeah. pouring out over and, what is fundamentally not all that controversial. Mm-hmm. And how do we we talk about it coming from the other side about how do we address it in an emotionally mature way that maybe actually expands the conversation, maybe brings people out of that defensive posture and also comes to see the world as, as an expansive thing, something that we can all take part in. And I think think if people would relax out of this oh i i my identity must be protected you can identify strongly with people who don't look like you that's the whole point of of uh fiction actually Mm -hmm. is to be able to put yourself in the perspective of someone else that's what makes fiction so lovely (sighs) well that was heavy (laughs) i I just needed to address because it was just this bizarre uh vitriol that came up in our social media when uh, you know we try really hard. Relatively, to keep... we we escaped a lot of that, given yeah. everything that's going on in the world right now, because we do talk about history. But then this, it popped up, and I I think it deserved addressing from us. All right, I hope you like that, and thanks for listening. 